There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends. But who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Nada Youssef, and you're listening to Health Essentials Podcast by Cleveland Clinic. Today, we're broadcasting from Cleveland Clinic Administrative Campus here in Beechwood, Ohio, and we're here with Dr. Marjan Adaran. Dr. Adaran is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and subspecialty board certified in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Did I say that right? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <Great>. Mouthful. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. And today we are talking about infertility. And please remember, this is for informational purposes only, and it's not intended to replace your own physician's advice. So before we jump into the topic, I have some icebreaker questions to get to know you on a personal level. Okay. So first of all, if you could pick one vacation destination, where would you go and why? So um, one of the best places that I've ever visited was in Thailand. Uh, the name of the place was Chiang Mai. And uh, I loved it because uh, we were on an elephant, elephant reservation. And uh, it was so peaceful, so beautiful. And it really put things in perspective in terms of why we're not important yes. and the rest of the planet is so important. Such a sense of peace. Loved wow. it. Wow. And about Thai food. Is oh, well, the Thai food just goes without saying. Yeah, that's another <laughs> <laughs> How about if you were stranded in a desert island? What three items would you want to have with you? Okay, so um, I've always loved reading books, so my answer is obvious. I must have a storage of books. Yes. <laughs> um, but of course, I need food and fire, I would say. Yes, okay, that's very smart. Mm -hmm. And then if you could choose your age forever, what age would you choose and why? Okay, uh, I would say 35 was an awesome age. Um, and I loved the 30s because by that time, I knew who I was, and uh, I felt confident in my own actions. And yet, there was still a sense of um, awe about the world mm -hmm. and being able to accomplish something in the world. So, great time. Oh, well, you seem very young-spirited. So. All <laughs> Thank right, well, you. let's uh, start the discussion with um, just the definition of infertility. What is the definition? Okay. So, the definition of infertility is 12 months of unprotected sex that leads to inability to conceive. It affects about... 15% of the population and um, <clears throat> does not mean that one doesn't proceed with an infertility investigation earlier than the 12 months. It really does depend on uh, what kind of history you've obtained from the patient. Okay, so it has to be 12 months of being unable to get pregnant to go to see a specialist, correct? There are other reasons to actually go in and see the specialist earlier. Okay. But if we're just talking about the definition, it's 12 months of a couple having sex, mm -hmm. um, but not getting pregnant during that time. Okay, great. So I want you also to explain the complex chain of events in order to get pregnant and where the issues may arise. Mm -hmm. So patients are always surprised that the pregnancy rate per month is as low as it is. So it's probably ranging anywhere from 15 to 20%, perhaps a little bit greater than that in the younger population. So as a species, we're not very fertile, okay? And uh, patients are always taken aback by that. And there, uh, there are probably many reasons uh, for this. 
Um, but the things that have to happen uh, correctly are you have to, within the first 14 days of the cycle, grow a dominant follicle, be able to send the right signals to the brain that leads to release of the egg. Then the egg has to be picked up by the tube. And in the tube, hopefully by that time, there's enough sperm that's sitting there to be able to fertilize the egg. The embryo then is created. Then the embryo has to travel the rest of the way from the tube into the uterus. The environment of the uterus needs to be absolutely perfect for implantation to occur. And also the embryo has to be absolutely perfect. And we believe that in many, many instances, in fact, the embryo that's created is not a normal embryo. And that's why with every single time that you have sex at the appropriate time, you're not gonna be establishing a pregnancy. Interesting. So the appropriate time to have sex, and ovulation, is it three days out of the month, or is it two days, the maximum? Yeah, so that's a great question, and it's uh, asked by so many of our patients. So the ideal time for um, uh, getting pregnant is going to be within probably the three days prior to ovulation. Okay? Three days prior to, prior to ovulation, right. Um, because essentially what you want is sperm there waiting for the egg to arrive. Okay. Um, so, yes, of course, um, using those ovulation predictor kits that so many of our patients do use can make it so that we're determining that ovulation is going to be happening within so many hours of when this LH surge is occurring, right? And so when the LH surge occurs, we say we'll have sex soon thereafter. But again, the sperm is there waiting for the egg to come out, you know, 36 hours, 42 hours after the LH surge. Wow, and, and sperm will stay there for 36 hours? Yes, it will. Wow, mm -hmm. how long does it stay in? Like, how long can it stay for? So sperm uh, can stay for quite a while, but um, up to three days wow. for sure. Yeah, so it can sit. So this is very interesting also in that um, after ejaculation occurs in the vagina, the sperm gets to the tube within 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. So many couples feel like they have to be you know, in bad, maybe hips so up for yeah, some duration, legs up, legs yeah. up all yeah. kinds of permutations have been heard. And honestly, that's, that's not true. It's in a very short duration that the sperm makes it up to the tubes. And then the sperm can, is also picked up by the crypts um, that are in the cervix. And so it can sit there for those wow. next 36 hours and waves of sperm are just uh, going up, th up through the uterus and into the tubes and actually out the tubes into the peritoneal cavity also. Wow. Um, so you said it's it's pretty common. It's a common issue. Infertility is at fifteen to twenty percent. About fifteen percent of the population will have infertility. Okay. So what I want to talk about is many people seem to think of women when a couple is having trouble carrying a child or getting pregnant. Can we talk about how it's not just a woman's problem? That infertility it's not women. That's all twenty fifteen percent. Yeah, women. yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. This is also something I always talk about with patients that don't make an assumption that it's coming on the female side. Um, in about 20% of cases, it's a pure male factor infertility. Um, and we can talk about some of those uh, causes in a minute. Um, but when you look at sort of, the, if you're looking at both the male and the female, in about 40% of cases, um, it's actually a combination of both the male and the female. So definitely the male plays yes. a huge role. <laughs> huge role so what causes infertility in men? Mm -hmm. um, and if we can talk about maybe some of the risk factors. Yeah. So in men, the most common factor, of course, is we begin the infertility investigation and in them is with doing a sperm count. Okay. 
And so if the sperm count is typically less than 15 million uh, per cc, then there's concern uh, for what we call oligospermia. Um, and of course, that's gonna be contributing to the person having difficulty getting pregnant. Um, but there are, uh, of course, degrees of abnormalities with the sperm, right? So the count may be 14 million, which is not so awful, even though it's still below normal, but it could be zero, it yeah. could be one. And the extremes of this would determine what direction we're gonna go. So usually if the sperm count is low, um, we, uh, since we're primarily, uh, we manage female infertility, we will send them to the male infertility specialist. And then at that time, what will happen is uh, they will undergo a more extensive history than what we've obtained. Um, they'll undergo a physical examination. And then as a result of the extent of the uh, amount of low sperm, or perhaps some of the other factors, let's say um, the history is obtained that the person has um, uh, problems with ejaculation, okay? Well, that takes you a different direction in terms of hormonal investigation right. Right. of why the individual's having these problems. And sometimes even genetic studies have to be done if the sperm count is extremely low. I see. So what are, do, you, do we know some of these risk factors for um, these sperm counts being low? So let me just kind of go backwards because you had asked what some of the various causes were for male infertility. There could be causes that are at the level of the brain. So problems like um, excess prolactin uh, secretion could lead to lower testosterone, which then could lead to low sperm counts. There could be problems just at the level of the gonad itself. So the testicle just um, is incapable of making the sperm. So maybe there was some kind of trauma or perhaps an infection in the distant past. There could be problems with um, getting the sperm from the testicle out to the to out, out from to the tip of the um, penis. And so again, maybe there was a genetic problem that led to those tubules not forming appropriately. Maybe there was an infection um, in the past. Um, and of course, there could be genetic issues. Yes. So um, those would be the more common causes of uh, male infertility. And then risk factors you talked about. Well, risk factors, as we're talking about these causes, you can see they're like coming out, yes. you know. Um, did you have infections in the past, right? Um, lots of times patients ask about the age of the man, right? Because this is a really big topic in females, yes. right? So the age of the man, the general broad um, response would be that um, the older we get as men, um, the, more like the, the more time it takes to conceive. But we probably won't see those changes until the man is over 50 years of age. Okay. Okay. Other risk factors, they're softer. So smoking. Yeah. I talk about smoking um, with the couples that come to see me. Um, probably in some men, smoking does play a role. Okay. It changes their um, antioxidant capacity. Um, but uh, for most men, there isn't black and white data that shows definitively smoking will have an impact on the quality of their sperm. Interesting, mm -hmm. interesting. How about something as drinking, maybe medication? It could be like a medication side effect. Yeah, yeah, it's those are lot. good. So drinking, again, the data is not definitive in terms of its impact on sperm, mm -hmm. although, of course, that question is always asked. And just like women, we're saying really less than one to two drinks a day yeah. uh, should be where we're going with that. Drugs, absolutely, they can have an impact on the, on the quality and the amount of sperm. Okay, I wanna go back to the age for, for mm -hmm. a second. Yep. Um, 
like when we took when we talk about women, their high risk pregnancies, let's say what is it, thirty five to forty, correct? And and for men, they can be how old to, to be able to, if they have good sperm? Mm-hmm. How old could they go to be able to get pregnant? There is no end there point. There is no end point. There is okay, no end point to it. Um, um, I mean, I suppose there is an end point, but I'm not aware of it. I yeah. think I always use the example of, and the younger population won't have heard of Tony Randall having a baby in his 70s. Yeah, you know, yeah. so it can happen definitely, but. Um, there's studies to suggest that the definitely the quality of the sperm is not the same, that there is more um, DNA breakage in the sperm. So you are going to be concerned potentially with more abnormalities. Um, and also there's some data to suggest that the rate of miscarriage is increased in women whose partner's age is significantly mm. um, older. Um, but again, they're all softer data. It's right. not as hardcore as what we hear about women and know about the state of eggs in women as it relates to their age. Now, as I was doing my research for this topic, I came across hot tubs for men mm-hmm. that they could be damaging. Is that true? Yeah. So, um, so again, <laughs> um, in preparation for this um, uh, uh, um, podcast today, I went ahead to look and see what does American Society of Reproductive Medicine say about this. And the data that they have is that um, there isn't really any definitive data to say hot tubs um, cause problems with getting pregnant um, on the male side. Uh, As in anything in life, of course, one would say, why would you overdo it? You know, I mean, uh, so have fun, but maybe you don't want to sit there all day long, you know, seven days a week, right? Yeah, right, right, right. (laughs) All right, so we got the men out of the way. What about causes of infertility in women? Yeah. So for women, it's easier for me to talk because obviously it's what I do on a daily basis. But when a woman comes in, there are three main areas that our history and our physical examination focuses on. So the number one area is um, getting a very detailed menstrual um, history on them. And the reason for that is because it gives a lot of clues about are they ovulating or not. So the majority of women that come in and uh, describe their uh, menses occurring within a very um, uh, cyclically normal time frame, so every 26 to 28 days, let's say, um, those people are in the majority of cases ovulating. If a woman says, no, we know my cycles vary, they go from every one to three months, that automatically I'm worried that that individual is not releasing an egg in a, on a, in a monthly ba- basis. It might be randomly that it's occurring, right. but not so um, uh, consistently. And so as you can see, those 12 months are not being used as efficiently, right? right? Um, by the way, that individual that their gynecologist knows that their periods are occurring every three months, that person shouldn't be waiting a year to come in for an investigation. We know right off the bat there's a problem there, so let's do the hormonal investigation and let's proceed with what we need to do to treat that problem. Sure, okay? sure. So the menstrual history is very important. The next thing is that we're trying to figure out the tubal status of the individual. Are their tubes open? Because that's the site where fertilization is going to be occurring. So the history that you're obtaining um, is going towards that, and that history would be have there been prior episodes of infection? Um, has there been multiple surgeries that have happened in the pelvis? Did you have an, a, a ruptured appendix in which there was pus in the pelvis and it potentially impacted 
um, the site of the tubes, the relationship of the tubes and the ovaries, any kind of scarring in the pelvis. Did you have three surgeries for Crohn's disease? You know, I mean, anything that's happening there in the, uh, in the pelvis could play a role with causing um, scar formation there. And of course, in the um, gynecology world, we're always worried about endometriosis as being a factor for patients because it's an inflammatory process that's happening in the pelvis. And in the low stages, while it doesn't necessarily cause problems with scar formation, the environment is inflammatory, and it, it could impact um, the ability of the egg and the sperm to have a good environment to fertilize um, each other. Um, but in the higher stages of endometriosis, absolutely, there could be significant distortion of the pelvis, which then leads to inability to get pregnant. So we talked about ovulatory status, we talked about tubal status, and of course the third one was the sperm issue, which we've already talked about. Right, right. Do fibroids, uh, uterine fibroids, cause uh, infertility as well? That's a very good question. So... It's pretty common, right? They are, um, they are common in certain populations, mm -hmm. and um, definitely people who have family histories of fibroids. Unfortunately, with fibroids, we still don't understand what are the factors, the risk factors that really lead to some person being more likely to have a fibroid versus another, other than what I've just uh, mentioned. Um, so fibroids, it is clear that if they're gonna play a role, it's if they are sitting inside the uterine cavity or if they are distorting the uterine cavity. But many people have fibroids that are just sitting in the muscle and sort of um, protruding outwards into the pelvis, so not likely to be playing a role in infertility. Sure. Now, I want to talk about endometriosis a little bit. It seems like it's, it's very common. Can you explain exactly what it is, what endometriosis is? Sure. So normally there is a tissue in the uterus that we call the endometrial cells. Um, this tissue is um, released every month. It's under the influence of hormones, and every month it's released, and that leads, of course, to the menstrual bleeding that women experience. So this same exact tissue, if it occurs different places in the pelvis, on the side walls, on the bladder, on the rectum, then every month when you bleed, it's still under the same influence, so of course it bleeds also. But it is within the pelvis, and so therefore it can lead to a lot of pain for the individual, scarring, and inflammation for that person. Sure. And there's different stages to endometriosis, correct? Like one to four. How can yeah. you tell how bad someone, someone's endometriosis is? Is mm -hmm. it just through an ultrasound? Yeah, I wish it was. Yeah, <laughs> endometriosis really still re remains an enigma today. Mm. Um, what's funny about endometriosis is that it is not easy to diagnose, and the degree of pain that the individual is experiencing is not related to how much endometriosis actually exists. Okay? So there will be people walking around with severe stage four endometriosis, not one iota of pain. Wow. Um, there will be people with horrifying pain and they barely have three spots of endometriosis. Wow. So, um, so what you're looking for to kind of give you the clues that somebody might have endometriosis for the general in-between population, not yeah. those two extremes that I talked about is, um, are you having a lot of pain with your periods? Some people do. And the next group of people are having not only pain with their periods, but also pain maybe the week before their periods. Mm -hmm. Then you might decide to do an ultrasound on those individuals. Yeah. And in most cases, in fact, the ultrasound is normal, okay? But sometimes what you'll see is what we call an endometriotic cyst that's on the ovaries. It has a very specific look to it. 
It's still not 100% diagnosis having endometriosis. Sure. The only way you make 100% diagnosis is by, by actually doing surgery and looking inside and saying, yes, this is the endometrioma that I saw, or yes, I see those particular lesions that I was just talking right. to you about on the side walls. Um, sometimes some individuals have enough endometriosis that's deep that when you do certain types of ultrasounds, and that you have good readers of the ultrasound also, yes. you can see that maybe organs are not sliding against each other as they should, so it right. gives you a clue, and MRI certainly can give right. you a better idea about deep infiltrating endometriosis. So what about treatments? Are there, because I've heard that something like maybe birth control would work on endometriosis, which is not going to work if you're trying to get pregnant, right? Yes, so what yeah. do you do with something like, you know, you, you open up someone and you see that they have endometriosis. Do you then remove some of the organs? I mean, are you scraping it off? What are you doing with all these with all yeah. this tissue? Yeah, so you have to kind of put the whole story together, yes. right? Um, so if an individual is coming in and their primary issue is pain, okay? And yes, of course, they want to maintain their ability to get pregnant. Sure. Then, you know, you maybe have gotten a good history on them, you've done some kind of imaging on them, but because of the degree of the pain that maybe has not been responsive to birth control pills, right. um, you then proceed forward with surgery. And then at the time of the surgery, your goal is to get the reproductive organs in their best shape possible. You're trying to minimize the amount of damage to the ovaries, mm -hmm. and inevitably, if you're trying to remove endometriomas, you will end up removing some eggs, because that's the way an endometrioma is created, right. okay? So you remove as much endometriosis, get the relationship of the tubes and the ovaries back to normal, and then leave. And then usually you're telling the patient, okay, if you actually have a partner at that time, please make sure that you try to get pregnant in the next year or two because you want to see the value of the yes. surgery that you went through. You do not expect that just because you removed endometriosis, it's gone forever. Inevitably, it does come back. Because we don't understand what brings on endometriosis, we don't know, you know, will no it take, yeah, we don't know. It'll be five yeah. years, it'll be three years, what is it? And we see all kinds of patients like that. Yeah, okay. yeah. So is this considered um, a chronic pain condition for some of these patients? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of the most common um, reasons for chronic pelvic pain in the GYN world. Wow, okay. okay. So um, we've talked about the causes. Um, I want to also go back to the same thing we asked about the men, the risk factors. Are these the same to men with infertility in general now that we're done with endometriosis? Is it smoking? Is it medication? Is it different for women, the risk factors? You mean risk factors for getting pregnant right. for women? Mm -hmm. So um, age is the most significant risk uh, uh, for the women, right? Mm -hmm. So we know um, fertility in general is just declining as we get older, but a significant decline is happening in our mid-30s. Um, onward, and then a, a dramatic drop of 40 onward. Um, but of course, your family history is very important in this case. Um, there are women who will say, you know, mom went through early menopause um, at age 40. Those women should never be waiting till their 30s to try to get pregnant. They really should be trying to get pregnant in their 20s, wow. right? So age is a big factor, and just to be clear for the audience, that is because women are born with all the eggs that they're going to be ever born with, and then from the minute they hit um, life on this earth, uh, they are just losing eggs constantly wow. versus men are regenerating sperm constantly. That's why they can continue to, to uh, procreate well beyond 50 years of age even. Um, 
So age is a big factor. Then you go, well, what are the factors that can impact this egg, right? Sure. And so smoking. Smoking in women actually has been shown to diminish fertility compared to men. What does it do? It leads to earlier menopause by one to four years. Um, they've actually seen the products related to smoking in the follicular fluid and in the egg. Um, wow. So it's likely leading to loss of eggs earlier, sure, okay? Sure. Smoking does. Alcohol, the data is very confusing. It's clear cut, no alcohol the minute you're pregnant because nobody knows the degrees to which it can lead to um, the problems that um, will lead to fetal alcohol sy syndrome. Sure. So um, no alcohol once you become pregnant. Um, but most of the studies which are not great randomized clinical trials will say no more than one to two drinks per day, yeah. which still in my world is, is excessive, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, what else am I missing? We talked about smoking, alcohol, age. Um, and then genetics, right? Genetics, we, we sort of, we talked yeah. about, right, yeah. in terms of your family history of... Yeah. So that's really interesting. So if a woman's trying to get pregnant, she should find out when her mother hit menopause mm -hmm. because based on that age, we should do it like 10, 20 years before. At least 10 years before that, At right. Least 10 right. Years. That is very interesting. Right, but it's hard. I mean, this is not, it's not fair to say <laughs> to, to my 28-year-old, you know, yeah, go ask your mom, you know, <laughs> what her story is because people's stories, as we know, this is what makes life so interesting, are convoluted. Yes. And, um, and so many moms have had their own issues. Maybe they had a hysterectomy. Maybe, maybe they don't know exactly when they went through menopause. Right. But for the most part, what I'd be telling my daughter is, yeah, try getting pregnant in your 20s. 20s. Yep. Okay, that's very good to know. So if a woman is on uh, birth control, let's say for most of her menstrual years, you know, since 13, 14, and then now she's 20s or 30s and trying to get pregnant, removes, let's say, IUD or whatever birth control they use, does that affect your rate of getting pregnant based on how many years you were on the pill or on some kind of birth control yeah. to make it harder? Yeah, that's a good question. So... Any of the forms of contraception, so that's birth control pills, IUDs, Depo-Provera, the implant, none of them will actually cause you to become infertile. Okay. Okay? okay. However, there's a difference in them in that how quickly you become pregnant depends on what agent you were on. So if you had the IUD in place, you remove it, the agent is gone, and you never were, you had never stopped ovulating, so you just kind of go right on ovulating, and you just have the same probability of getting pregnant the next month, right. okay? If you were on Depo-Provera, well, that drug can stay in your system for a while. Is that pill form, or what The Depo-Provera is, is the injection, oh, the injection. of high-dose progesterone, progesterone acetate that's being given every 12 weeks. It's incredibly effective uh, for contraception, um, but it can stay in the system for a while. And so until the person says, my periods are back to normal, then they're most likely not ovulating. But when it gets back to normal, they will be ovulating, and so they will get pregnant. But just because you were on it didn't make you become infertile. Sure. Okay? And the same thing with birth control pills. People are different with birth control pills. Some individuals come off of it, and next month they're totally back to normal. Other people, it might take up to three months, okay. which happens a lot in which patients say, well, I... I was told to stop trying to get pregnant when I finished the birth control pill, wait three months and clear it out of my system. And I'm like, nope, 
the minute you're done with a birth control pill, start. Stop. The drug is out of your system. The right. question is, are you ovulating or not? Okay. So use your opportunity. Yeah, and the menstrual cycle is a big factor to see if you have a normal menstrual cycle again. That's when you're ovulating, correct? Usually you are ovulating, okay. usually. Excellent. So it all depends on what birth control you're taking, and it really depends on the person of how long it would take before getting pregnant. Correct. It's it's your personal history. Right. So if you were a person that before you got on birth control pills, you had very irregular cycles, then of course when you come off the birth control pills, you'll likely go back to the same rhythm. And it's not the birth control pill that caused the infertility. It's the fact that you were never really consistently ovulatory. Sure. Okay. That's very good to know. So what other things should a woman do before trying to conceive? So... You want to make sure, obviously, that you are at your best weight. Okay. Weight is known to have an impact on your ability to get pregnant. Excess weight or being underweight will have an impact on fertility. And its prime way of doing that is it impacts ovulation. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, also, excess weight um, can lead to higher rates of miscarriages. Mm -hmm. So miscarriages are always, always sad but they're even sadder when you've tried so hard to become pregnant, right. and now you're sitting at this position. Also, both excess weight and lower weights can lead to problems during pregnancy itself. So if you're overweight, you're worried about gestational diabetes, you're worried about hypertension, you're worried about preeclampsia. Um, if you're underweight, you're worried about preterm delivery, you're worried about problems with the baby after the baby grows up in terms of um, their uh, obesity status, okay, so, uh, and preterm delivery, I think I already mentioned. Um, so getting your weight under control is important. Um, so that means healthy eating and healthy dieting um, prior to attempting pregnancy. Um, uh, usually the recommendation also is to be on prenatal vitamins or some kind of a multivitamin. Usually with multivitamins, you are getting your folic acid, you're getting your iron, you're getting your calcium in place, all the things that your body needs and the baby needs uh, once you become pregnant. Sure, sure. Okay. Now, with folic acid, I, I remember my uh, doctor was always, you know, very adamant about, you know, getting high levels of that. Why do uh, pregnant women need high levels of folic acid and iron and calcium? Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? So folic acid is necessary because it plays a role in uh, development of the neural tube. And so... Um, it is such a simple thing to do. Mm -hmm. Most times we are taking of getting folic acid, of course, through our diet. Um, and a lot of the food that we have in the United States certainly is fortified uh, with folic acid. But it's simple to decrease the probability of neural tube defects by supplementing with folic acid. Okay. And then we talked about obesity uh, being linked to infertility. How about stress? Can stress mm -hmm. cause infertility? Yeah. What a great question. Um, <laughs> I would love it if there was a randomized answer. I would love an answer, <laughs> and I would love it if there was just sort of a, a randomized um, uh, double-blind trial yeah. that would show this. Um, and I think there never will be, because as humans, what we can tolerate is so variable. Is you know, for yeah, yes. for all of us. Yes. So, so in the extremes, I believe, yes. But in the extremes, our body is very protective of us, right? So there is something atrocious that has happened, um, and our body is going to skip a period. What did we say? If your periods are not normal, then most likely you didn't ovulate, and therefore you're not going to be getting pregnant. But usually that state doesn't last. So I tell patients, stress 
can, I believe, delay your getting pregnant, but it's not going to cause five years of infertility. Okay. Okay? okay. So yes, walk in the door and undergo an investigation. Yes. Should those 12 months go by. Okay. And speaking okay. of investigations, I want to talk about you know, finding the cause of infertility is a long, complex process, emotional process for the couple. Uh, when you first see a couple regarding infertility, what kind of questions do you ask? And then do you test them both from the get-go, or is that based on the questions? You go to a specialist for the male, or how does that work? Yeah. So um, I think you asked a couple of questions in there. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'll just give you all of them at once. But basically... When, when a couple comes to see you for infertility, what kind of questions do you ask? Mm -hmm. So we ask questions both of the male and the female. Okay. Um, during that interaction, you get an idea about the level of anxiety mm -hmm. that exists and sort of where each individual is sitting in regards to um, should you be at all intervening about um, uh, seeing a therapist or something because the degree of anxiety is so high. But both sets of um, both individuals questions are being asked and depending on what they say yes it's going to take you a direction mm -hmm. so if the partner for example says yes i was married to another individual for 10 years and i did not get pregnant first up is you're going to do the sperm count and not do the tubal testing on the woman up front because that's a painful test and i would rather not have her experience that until we know what the sperm count is. If the story is completely clean, there are no red flags on either individual, then I just say start the tests of sperm, tube, ovulation testing um, all together, whatever pattern works for you. Okay. So what are the main uh, tests, some of the most common tests that a woman has to get when um, there is a risk of yeah. being infertile? Yeah, it's pretty um, basic. So if, again, it's a very normal history that's been obtained, mm -hmm. Um, we're going to do, usually, there's multiple ways of testing for tubal patency, but the classic way is what's called a hysterosalpingogram. It's an x-ray that's done uh, in the radiology department. And with this x-ray, you can see the caliber of the tubes and whether the tubes are open or not. There are other ultrasound-guided ways of assessing the, the tubes also. Mm -hmm. um, and in the male, of course, it's going to be checking the sperm count, shape, motility, and, um, and the final test is to actually prove that the individual is ovulating, uh, the female is ovulating, and that would be um, using an ovulation predictor kit, but a week later checking the progesterone status to determine that, yes, that ovary made the progesterone that is reflective of ovulation a week ago. Sure, sure. And then you did say if the couple seem to be distressed, you do take them to therapy or you tell them to see a therapist as well? I recommend it, yes. Okay. You can see infertility just honestly eats away at the soul of the couple, yeah. puts so much stress between them, especially if they're not exactly on the same page. Women usually come in far more anxious than men. Men, if they are at all worried that there's something sperm-related, take on such a huge burden upon themselves. Th they make it be a my problem, your problem, Although, honestly, we do view it as an our problem. Sure. Um, it's, it's way, way too stressful to be blaming yourself. And people do blame themselves. Yeah. I can imagine. I'm glad that option is there for them as well. So let's talk about treatment of infertility. First of all, are there medications that you can take to help fertility? Yes. So you always have to say, well, what's the problem? And then try to address that problem, right? And so... If the problem is an ovulatory dysfunction, then yes, there are medicines 
to um, assist the woman with ovulation. So some of the um, ones that most people are familiar with is clomiphene citrate. It's a really, really old drug. Um, and what it does is it fakes the brain into thinking that there's no estrogen around. So the brain sends a signal of FSH that makes the follicle grow. And once the follicle grows, it becomes self-sufficient and then sends a signal for ovulation. Um, there are newer drugs, which are like aromatase inhibitors that can almost do the same thing, um, although via a different um, pathway. There are just injections of FSH that one can take to try to grow eggs and then give the signal for the person to ovulate. So ovulatory problems usually have very good success rates um, with um, getting pregnant. Unfortunately, if there are sperm problems, it's not so easy. Um, the majority of cases, when we were talking about the various causes of um, male infertility, in fact, um, it's idiopathic, meaning in about 50% of cases, we don't know why the sperm count is low. And so depending on how low it is, the male infertility doc might have various options. In the very, very severe cases, unfortunately, the option really just becomes in vitro fertilization. So when you mention you know, pills, and from the very get-go, you said the brain tells your body to ovulate, right? So mm -hmm. it kind of starts with the brain. It's, is it the same way for a man then? Yes, absolutely. Everything is controlled by the, the brain. brain. Right. Yeah. The brain has to send the right signal, which then works on either the ovary or the testicle to do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And then what the ovary and testicle produce feeds back to the brain to kind of keep yeah. this loop active and controlled which again makes, makes so much sense for stress and how that could affect. Because Absolutely. Because it all starts in your brain. Right. So um, let's talk about some common, common methods of, um, it's called ART, is that assisted reproductive technology. Mm -hmm. So can we talk about what it is and some of the common uh, methods? Yes. Assisted reproductive technologies. So there's a definitely a spectrum to that. One of the smallest things that most patients come in having read about and would like to give a trial is um, intrauterine inseminations. Um, there's lots of different terms that are in the literature, artificial insemination with husband, artificial insemination with donor, so AIH, AID, um, and IUI, intrauterine inseminations. So intrauterine inseminations um, is very low-key in that the uh, husband um, or partner is ejaculating into the cup, the sperm is washed, so the semen is removed, and it's just sperm that's placed in a very small amount of fluid. And then this um, fluid is compatible with the female body. Mm -hmm. The sperm is picked up by an incredibly thin tube and then placed through the cervix into the uterus. There are actually multiple ways of doing intrauterine inseminations, but this is the one that I just described. So just from what I described to you, it would seem like an intrauterine insemination would be a value for somebody who had something done to their cervix, some kind of damage to their cervix potentially. Or perhaps it would play a role in a case where ejaculation can't happen consistently um, inside the vagina, because I, I had told you that within 15 minutes, the sperm is where it's gotta be, right? right? So you gotta figure out, is there value for the, all the other people that don't have these problems, right? right? Mm -hmm. um, it can play a role for people who maybe the volume of the semen is incredibly low, and maybe the, the sperm is sitting on the right side of the vagina and not right where it's supposed to be sitting, cupped underneath the cervix itself. Um, but there are studies to suggest that doing intrauterine insemination in conjunction with some of the fertility medications, together they can enhance uh, fertility outcomes. 
Um, how about is that um, that's that's not called IVF. That's very different, correct? Correct, correct. So what is IVF? Yeah. In vitro fertilization, yes. in vitro, as opposed to in vivo, in vivo in the body, in vitro outside the body, oh, okay? okay? So things are happening in a dish. And so with in vitro, what we're doing is we are growing eggs in the female because unlike men, it's not easy to access the eggs in a woman, right? Yes. So we have to grow the eggs. The eggs are growing in the follicles. And then eventually, the woman has to go through a surgical procedure, typically through the vagina, in which those follicles are sucked out, the fluid, and the egg is obtained. And then the egg is sitting in the dish. The sperm is obtained from the man, and that's being put in the dish also. And then either the egg and the sperm are just spontaneously fertilizing each other, or we do a process called ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, where you take the sperm and put it inside the egg, the mature egg, and then you wait to see if fertilization occurs. So that would be in vitro fertilization and outside, outside the body. Okay. So now the embryo is created outside the body. Mm -hmm. It grows in culture for several days. In our program, it's five days. And then at that time, the best embryo is selected and placed through the cervix into the uterus. Mm -hmm. Wow, and how long can that stay in that container before putting it in? How You said you wait five days and then it has to be on the fifth day? It's, um, programs are a little bit different. Some programs day five, some programs day six, the majority are day five. But remember, the embryo has to be supported by the media and the culture that it's sitting in. It needs uh, various uh, nutrients, of course, for it to grow appropriately. So at this point, uh, we can only sustain till about day five or six. Yes. Then after yes. day six, either the embryos are good enough to be frozen um, or maybe they were even frozen on day five, certainly, sure. or else they haven't grown to the stage that they need to grow, and they're declaring themselves, and then they are discarded. So what are the, what are, uh, the rates of success on these procedures? Mm -hmm. So it is totally age-dependent. Okay. Um, so many patients, uh, maybe in the past, I think people are, are far savvier nowadays, um, but IVF does not overcome age, okay? So the 25-year-old has a far greater pregnancy rate than the 42-year-old is going to, right? Because the eggs are 25 versus the eggs are 42. So I would say um, the under 35 crowd, again, it depends on the particular program that you go to, but you should expect a pregnancy rate close to 60%, okay? Um, that's a different still than the live birth rate because there's a lot of other issues that um, will present as a pregnancy is progressing, of right, course. Right. Great. Well, is there anything else that I didn't talk about or didn't ask you about that you wanted to bring up because we're out of time? Ah. I think um, the only other topic that I would have brought up also is given what we know about our culture, people are very busy. We want women to be out there taking care of their life and moving forward and having those great 30s I was talking about. Um, to have a little thought about potentially fertility preservation. Like, okay. are there some options for young women who might be thinking about delaying childbearing? Is this freezing your eggs? Yeah. Is that what that yeah. is? Okay. Yeah. I would say um, to come in and ask questions from your fertility specialist. Is this something that might be good for you or not? Okay, so okay. if a woman, let's say, is 33, 34, still not married, wants children, yep. that she should see an infertility specialist? Yep. 
yep. and be able to talk about maybe freezing the eggs or the options. Correct, correct. Okay. That's, a, that's a very, very good message. Thank okay. you. Right. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. I had fun. Thank <laughs> you. It's been a pleasure. And thanks again to all of our listeners who joined us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And to learn more about infertility and treatment options, you can go to clevelandclinic.org slash fertility and download our free fertility treatment guide. And to listen to more of our Health Essentials podcast from Cleveland Clinic experts, make sure you go to clevelandclinic.org slash HE podcast, or you can subscribe on iTunes. And for more health tips, news, and information from Cleveland Clinic, make sure you're following us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at Cleveland Clinic, just one word. Thank you. We'll see you again next time. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.